This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Corinne Iosio. And I'm Sarah Chodosh. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, putting together a print magazine, because we still do that in the year of our Lord 2020, and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Corinne, it's been a while. Welcome to the show. Hello. Would you like to start with your teas? Sure. I'm going to talk about a very strange intestinal reaction that some people have in bookstores. This feels really right up my alley. <laughs> GI problems in books. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to talk about the elephant in the room and specifically how that elephant is on a lot of acid. Okay. Yeah. All righty. Okay. Uh, Sa- All right. Sarah, your, your tease, please. Uh, my fact is about what William Howard Taft, president, Supreme Court chief justice, and man famous for getting stuck in a bathtub, has to do with... Um, After my own heart. Yes. Has to do with rapid-aged whiskey. Wow. Mm. Fascinating. We've got three confusing facts. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack Ooh, here. Where to begin? I need to know about the GI reactions. Okay. okay. Great. All right. So the first thing I want to do is give credit to my friend Gabe, who several months ago brought this fact to my attention. Gabe is a, a book editor. He has his own imprint. And as such, he spends a lot of time browsing bookstores. And we're just hanging out one day, having a couple beers. And he casually mentions to me that his brother flat out refuses to go into bookstores with him. Because every time he goes in, very quickly upon entry, he is overcome by the urge to poop. <laughs> wow. Hmm. And Weird. Yeah. And I completely did not believe this. I'm like, okay, I wouldn't really want to go into the vortex of walking into a bookstore with a book editor either. It sounds like a really great excuse. (laughs) I got to poop. Sorry. Sorry. Got to go. I'll be outside. So naturally, I decided to talk to the internet about it. And at least as far as the internet is concerned, this actually is a thing. There's countless Twitter posts, Reddit threads, just way more information about people's (laughs) shopping bathroom habits than you ever wanted to know, except that if this has happened to you, you are very much not alone. It has a name. It is called the Mariko Aoki phenomenon. It is so named after the first person that we know of to document it, the Japanese woman who wrote a letter to a magazine in 1985. She wrote, I'm not sure why, but about two or three years ago, Whenever I go into a bookstore, I get struck by an urge to move my bowels. And this was just a letter to the editor. They probably published it because they thought it was, you know, weird and quirky and entertaining. (laughs) And then they got so much mail. (laughs) I thought I was the only one. I 
all the bookstore poopers yes. come out of the woodwork. <laughs> no, letters to the editor are the Reddit of 1985. Yeah, um, very true. And so they commissioned for their next issue a 14-page investigation to try to understand what in the actual wow. hell was going wow. on. I wish we got these kinds Good of letters for them, to the editor. Right? It's amazing. Inconclusive. Just so we're wow. all aware. 14, 14 pages, pages of inconclusive reporting. That's a, that's, that's a lot of pages devoted to nothing. You could have cut that down. Seriously. And now, number of pages. Yeah. And here we are, 35 years later, still not quite sure exactly what's going on. Wow. So it's a phenomenon. It's just like, it happens. Yes. Some people say. Yes. But of course, that doesn't mean that there's a shortage of explanations. Hmm. Offerings, hypotheses, if you will. Naturally, some people say it's an urban myth. It's like a group think thing Mm -hmm. where it's just sort of people talking themselves into stuff. But there's also a whole bunch of physiological and psychological hypotheses about what's actually going on. So before we dive into all of the things we don't know, we're just going to take a quick second to talk about what we actually do. Now, we all are familiar with the concept of like, you haven't dropped a deuce when you were away from your home, you were on vacation, you come home and you're immediately overcome with the urge to purge, so to speak. Sure. Mm-hmm. And we know that familiar places can trigger this. And, you know, for ha- perhaps for some people, bookstores are familiar. There's also reports of people having to go to the bathroom in CVS and Target and video game stores and grocery yeah. stores. Well, a lot of those just, places will not have a bathroom for you. I was so just going to really say, I've never been to a CVS where you could go to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. So... I have a story about this. Oh, boy. Wow. One Talk to I was, us. I was on a road trip, and I really had to use the restroom. And so I walked into a Walgreens, and I was like, please, please, can I use your restroom? And they were like, yeah, I guess so. And so this woman walked, or she was like, go to the back of the store. And then she got on the radio, and she said, code B. <laughs> You're a code B. Yeah. So then they sent somebody to unlock the bathroom for me. That was code B. So that's my story. They apparently have secret bathrooms if you ask them really nicely and desperately. I've always wondered about that. Like, if you walk in and we're like, I am about to poop my pants, you must let me into your <laughs> employees only yeah. restroom. Yep. I think most people would, out of the kindness of their heart, be like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. Semi-related, there are people called serial poopers who go into stores and then, like, poop among the racks. And nobody's quite sure why. Intentionally? What? Yeah. One time... I spent one semester at Boston University. This is not a story about me pooping in a store. Rachel is the serial pooper. <laughs> Quick, just cut Rachel's microphone. Yeah, I was at Boston University for one semester before I transferred back to Simon's Rock. Go Llamas. And right after I had decided that I wanted to go back to Simon's Rock, I walked into the like group bathroom standard dorm building mm-hmm. stuff and i opened the bathroom stall and there was just a poop in the middle of it somebody like taking a sh- in the shower just <laughs> giant wow. it was very deliberate God. and you know what it made me feel really good about my decision to leave <laughs> so that's um, just so mean because like think of the person who has to clean up your poop later i know well it wasn't me i can yeah. tell you that rachel i went- backed away <laughs> <laughs> anyway Serial pooping aside, let's talk about us feeling the need to poop when we return to familiar places. Now, in 2017, the Atlantic dug into what they call, and this is this is their term, and I quite love it, returner's release. <laughs> and specifically into what's basically like the call and response that your body has with familiar environments. Mm. There's all kinds of notions that, you know, our microbiomes and our home's microbiomes talk to each other. There's all there's relationships between 
your blood glucose and things like that and you being home. Mm-hmm. So like naturally, okay, cool. It makes perfect sense that, you know, you're in your safe place now. Mm-hmm. It's time. You may release your bowels. Yes. <laughs> um, it's such a calming voice. Yeah. I wish, I, know, heard that, I, I, wish I heard that in my head every time I needed to poop. Yeah, yeah. Every oh, time you just were having like a little bit of anxiety. anxiety. <laughs> you sound exactly like the guy from um, Headspace. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love Headspace. Oh my God. I had no idea I had this talent. <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily apply to all of the people who are experiencing the Mariko Aoki phenomenon, right? Because like a bookstore isn't necessarily a super familiar place for everyone Mm. but it does affect a lot of people an extremely scientific buzzfeed poll says that 61 percent of respondents have had this moment in a bookstore specifically that's a hundred percent a bias of ascertainment though 60 percent of humans don't poop have to poop when they go to a bookstore right just 60% yeah. of humans who Googled who, or clicked on an yeah, article. who went to that BuzzFeed article. <laughs> who just needed to be like, me too! <laughs> but anyway, that doesn't stop us from wanting to really understand why. So just going to tick through a couple of the, the thoughts about what exactly is going on here. One of the most widely reported is that it has something to do with the, the chemical smells of the inks and the glues and the paper. That would make sense. You know, there's precedent for different smells and tastes triggering extreme sudden mm-hmm. digestive response is it because people read on the toilet and then the smell of Ooh, a book that's interesting see rachel's poopy. like rachel's as smart as these scientists <laughs> because they've also tried to figure that out but on the smell thing one japanese researcher got a bunch of old books and newspapers and buried his face in them for 10 minutes <laughs> um the poop status on that was negative <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, there's another notion of, like, we associate reading with toilets. <laughs> and so it's sort of a Pavlovian response. And for some people, this goes all the way back to when they were potty training because sure. a lot of potty training involves books and books, you know, like everybody poops. Yeah. So there's potentially a really strong association there. Again, nobody's done any study to really prove it. So, you know, we're there. We're relaxed. Some people find reading soothing. Reading soothes people to sleep. Why wouldn't it possibly soothe them to poop? (laughs) I wonder, is there like, has anyone investigated whether there's a correlation between people who like enjoy reading or like people who read on the pooper and pooping when in bookstores? (laughs) Um, So, shockingly. I found no studies or data wow. even the like trying to find study porn. to do. Yep. <laughs> but then so like relaxation, right? Some other people think that the opposite is true, that like people have stressful associations with books. They're overwhelmed by all of this information. And oh, my God, I have to make a decision. I have to pick a book out of all of these my books. My tiny lady yeah. brain is <laughs> overcome and I just must poop. Oh, woe is me. So many words, so much knowledge I will never possess. Or that like it's triggering stressful memories from when we were mm. in college. Like cramming at a library. Yeah, this is what I thought it was going to be, that people are stressed out by bookstores and it's like a fight or flight. And <laughs> yeah. your body's like, get rid of the poop. No. <laughs> well, because we know that like a sudden... Lighten like, the load. Right? <laughs> well, yeah. Because we do know. like Yeah. I mean, like sudden stress yeah. makes us kind yeah. of... Makes us sh- our pants. When I was on the swim team and I would like have to go up and get ready and like stand behind the block, inevitably I got up there and was like, oh no, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I think it's often because the, the blood is being diverted away from... Yeah digestion it's why you vomit too yeah well some people vomit it's also why you get diarrhea when you run yeah or or don't i mean i I don't want to suggest that everyone who runs gets the runs but (laughs) but it does happen many (laughs) just enough for it to be a thing so that's just 
the psychological stuff. There are also some pretty dubious physiological explanations having to do with our posture when we crouch down or bend at the waist to look at the shelves. Oh, We're like straightening out like our poopers. like being on a squatty potty exactly. when you get down Those to the, the lower best. shelf. Those are so They're good. They're great. so comfy, although crossing your legs kind of does the same thing. Interesting. Mm, interesting. It's true that I probably crouch in that position in a bookstore more than like anywhere else. But I don't know. I do it in the grocery yeah. store. Yeah, that's true too. How many okay. people are crouching down to look in books? I'm not buying it. I mean, the, <laughs> especially if it's like as soon like as you lower. walk in. Yeah, yeah, I just feel like everyone, you start browsing. Like you have to be really into it to be to like bend down at to the, look at the yeah. books. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, but I like if you think that that is ridiculous. There are other ones that say something about tilting your head to the side and your gaze as you like no, glance no, over no. the spines of the books has no, some sort no, of no. digestive trigger. Beyond, just no. so beyond anything. Wow. Yeah. So that is probably the most whacked out of the theories, and that is where the theories end. <laughs> I like the association of like books. I don't. Yeah. I don't read books on the toilet, so mm. I didn't think about that. Mm. But it's. Weird, though, because I was so curious about this because it flies so contrary to this notion that, like, a lot of people just don't like pooping in public. It's Mm -hmm. a pretty common thing. But, like, if you get so stressed out and you have this, it's actually, it's not like an actual condition that's in the DSM, but there is a condition in the DSM about fear of urinating in public when other Mm. people might hear. But there's a complementary condition that we don't really have data about for not wanting to poop when other people might hear you or might likely be around. But holding it in can be, like, real bad. Yeah. Yeah. Like It's we're, not good. You get constipated. Well, yeah. And then in the long run, if you put enough stress and strain on those muscles and nerves, mm. opposite problem. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to say have, like, hemorrhoids. No, no. You'll make yourself, like, sustained, repeated constipation can actually then make you uh, not constipated. That's unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, I don't know. I guess the upshot here is, like, nobody seems to really know why this happens to people in bookstores. But if you got to poop, you should, you know, find a bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Please don't be a serial pooper. Don't be a serial pooper. But just just do it and read the books. We like books. Yeah. Though probably not in the bookstore. No. Don't don't bring those into the toilet with you. Did anybody else see that episode of Seinfeld? (laughs) The bo- George took a book into the bathroom with him, at, you know, whatever their equivalent in Barnes & Noble was, and then they forced him to buy it because it had been flagged. <laughs> and then he tried to return it at other bookstores, and they looked at it, for, and they spied some, like, unknown mark, and he was like, I'm sorry, sir, this book has been flagged. <laughs> flagged by poop. Yep. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more facts. Okay, we're back. And I'm going to talk about an elephant on an acid trip. It's a sad trip. Oh, no. And a, a, a bad, long one. A bad trip? A bad like trip, Dumbo? a sad trip. <laughs> it's kind of like Dumbo, Jess. Aww. So That movie is kind of an acid trip. I'll just say that. <laughs> it's a really disturbing story. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. This is also kind of a disturbing story, but it has a slightly more uplifting ending. So it's 1962, and this elephant named Tusco is the prize of Oklahoma City Zoo. He's 14. He's in his prime. He's a robust specimen weighing more than three tons. And scientists at the University of Oklahoma decide to shoot him up with acid, meaning LSD. How much acid do you have to give an elephant? Oh, we're going to talk about that. (laughs) 
they made the wrong choice. Um, (laughs) So ostensibly, they were doing this to try to incite something called must. Uh, It's spelled M-U-S-T-H. It's an Urdu word from the Persian for drunk. And it's this period that male elephants go through of like really intense aggression and their testosterone spikes. It's like an average of 60 times higher than normal, but can be up to, I think, 140 times higher. So it's a process we don't really understand even now, but it's likely linked somehow to like some sort of rut or the pheromones involved in territorial meeting practices and just like arousal in general. It probably has something to do with mating. But yeah, it causes problems when elephants are in captivity, even elephants that are known to play really well with humans and act fine and not try to kill people can get really, really violent without much warning. So if you're going to keep elephants in zoos, which is, you know, it may be a subject for debate, understanding must is something that researchers have been hoping to do for a while. And the thing is, it's hard to study something that we don't really understand when it's like a random biological process that you don't know how to trigger or control. So they were trying to come up with like an analogy for it, you know, some kind of controllable experimental protocol they could put in place that's like we do this and it triggers this behavior that is almost identical to must. And so we can study that and study how to stop that. And for some reason, they decided that LSD could be a way to do this. It is unclear why. And frankly, suspicious that they chose LSD, which we'll get into more in a minute. But instead of inducing rage or violence, the drugs led Tusco to collapse and start seizing. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Yeah, after just five minutes. And then about 20 minutes later, they gave him a really potent antipsychotic, which did nothing to help. And then they ended up tranquilizing him because he was seizing and clearly in a lot of distress, and he died shortly thereafter. Oh, Jesus. But it doesn't take too much scrutiny to see a ton of flaws in the experiment, even ignoring the whole issue of them not having any indication that LSD would induce the behavioral situation they were trying to study. The researchers involved didn't really note their reasoning or dosing on the drugs they were using to intervene. So now researchers say it's impossible to actually tell what killed Tusco. And in fact, most think it was probably the antipsychotic and or the barbiturate that was given to him to calm him down, not the LSD. Like they stopped his heart? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And then there's the LSD itself. So the scientists injected Tusco with 297 milligrams of LSD, which might not sound like that much because it's about 100 milligrams lighter than the optimal dose of ibuprofen for an adult human. Don't you take like micrograms though? Exactly. (laughs) Right. But yeah, LSD is really strong. Doses are counted in micrograms and that's one-tenth the mass of a grain of sand. So we know that LSD targets a few receptors in the brain, but the key one is the serotonin receptor. And the LSD molecule catches onto it in such a way as to make the receptor close up around it. So it just stays in there, making the receptor fire repeatedly, which is what causes hallucinations. And until your brain cells can absorb the receptor and break down the molecule, which takes several hours, you'll keep feeling the effects. So, yeah, it does not take a lot of LSD to take it to some crazy places. 
in humans, and so some of this information is from the Illinois Science Council. They have a blog about Tusco. So in humans, just 20 to 30 micrograms of LSD is enough to induce hallucinations, which is about 0.02 milligrams or 0.004 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And uh, around 100 to 200 micrograms, which is still just 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams, is enough to produce major mental disturbances in people like psychosis and delirium. Tusco's dose was equivalent to 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, or about 25 times what would induce psychosis in a three-ton human body. Oh, my God. So, so when, when did we figure out this math? <laughs> Did they just not understand numbers? <laughs> <laughs> so they understood. I, I will I will get into the researchers who were doing this experiment okay. in a second. But it seems like that they were convinced based on what studies there were of animals and LSD that it would take more, not just per kilogram, but just more in general. Because their circulatory systems are fundamentally different or something. I, yeah, and okay. it, it's just, it's really a, a fundamentally flawed way for them to go about it. Usually when you're giving any kind of creature, whether they're human or a non-human animal, some kind of substance for the first time mm-hmm. on the record, or even when there's just not a huge body of evidence about how much is right to give them, you start with what you're almost certain is way too small and then you move up you know it's pretty straightforward not not hard to understand the logic there and instead it seems like they just were like well better make sure we get a big enough dose so god almost 300 milligrams it is so why did this happen you might ask rightfully (laughs) we've asked so many times on this show (laughs) yes yeah and i think that we're all just so stunned that the words aren't coming but yes that (laughs) so uh one suspicious player in the affair is that the late dr lewis jollyon jolly west he was known as jolly did he study elephants no but he did help the government study lsd as a possible tool for mind control wow wow (laughs) great yeah a little aside about what LSD is. Lysergic acid diethylamide, the LSD acronym actually comes from the German name, fun fact, was derived in 1938 by Albert Hoffman. He made it from a chemical produced by ergot, the uh, hallucinogenic fungus that grows on rye. And apparently he actually accidentally ate some around five years after synthesizing it and realized its psychedelic properties. And then he decided he would start experimenting with dosage. And it was actually marketed in Europe as a psychiatric wonder drug. Then the CIA had to step in and literally buy the world's supply of it for $240,000 so they could try to use it for mind control (laughs) during the Cold War. The CIA has truly done some unbelievable things. Yes. Yeah. It's like the Manchurian candidate, more true than you would like to believe. (laughs) Exactly. So, yeah, this infamous suite of projects was called MKUltra, and people talk about it a lot. But I wanted to bring it up in relation to the Tusco story because— I think, at least for me, I always kind of assumed that the wildest stories were ones that we, like, didn't have confirmation of. Mm -hmm. Like, I knew that MKUltra was real. I knew that the government had been like, can we control minds, maybe with drugs? But so here's just one example to make it clear how absolutely crazy this was. In Operation Midnight Climax, the CIA turned some of their San Francisco safe houses into brothels and drugged customers, the logic being that they would be too ashamed of where the incident had occurred to ever tell anyone. And then they watched them through a two-way mirror 
to mm. see how the LSD affected them. Midnight Climax. <laughs> yes. Operation Midnight Climax. What a name. Um, right? and I'm glad I that you were stuck there, too. Heard yeah. this before. <laughs> I had heard this before, but I thought it was something that, like, people thought might have happened. But no, this is like a declassified 100% true thing. Do you just feel like maybe the CIA for a while was like a bunch of college bros grown up who were like, what if we give a bunch of people some acid? They're just trolling everyone just a little bit. Like, yeah. how long do you think we can keep this going? Yeah. Yeah. And it, acid wasn't even illegal in the U.S. until 1968. And they did that because hippies were having too much fun with it. So um, they needed to shut that down. Trying to learn more about themselves and have a good time <laughs> instead of mind controlling people with yeah. it. So our and, parents ruined everything. And at least according to the CIA, it was uh, never never really worked out as a mind control drug. So there is evidence that uh, it does make you more susceptible to the power of suggestion, which is, you know, I would say most drugs. Yeah. Particularly I mean, hallucinogenics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So there's a lot of actually really fascinating research on LSD starting to come out of the woodwork now. You know, for a while it was not really something you could get funding for because of how it was illegal. Thanks, government. But it's considered one of the safer drugs. You can definitely have a bad trip, but it's not considered addictive. There have been deaths on LSD, but it's not something you can, strictly speaking, OD on. And it has some really positive effects when taken in the right settings. There's a lot of research now on people overcoming depression, anxiety, PTSD by having like guided counseling sessions Mm -hmm. while being on LSD or psilocybin, which are uh, magic mushrooms, which are a very similar hallucinogenic compound. And a lot of it, people think, may come down to interesting connections that seem to happen in the brain when you're on LSD, just parts of the brain talking to each other in a different way than usual. And also something called the default mode network, which is basically the functional connections in your brain that are kind of running in the background and are actually more active when you're not focused. It's like the brain system that makes up your stream of consciousness mm. physically has has like less going on when you're on LSD. And they think that's what leads to this kind of ego disillusion where you are like feeling more connected to the world. And like it's really hard to describe because it's like literally just like you the sense that you are an individual separate from other people and the world and things around you just kind of goes away, apparently, or can. They just want to love, man. (laughs) So with the right kind of talk therapy, this kind of dissolution of the ego seems to help people overcome various traumas or anxiety about death. It's been especially promising for patients of terminal illness and in kind of helping people break free from those kinds of fears. So yeah, there's now starting to be really cool research on it. No thanks to the CIA and MKUltra. And to briefly bring it back to poor Tusco, in 1984, a scientist named Ronald Siegel, who was best known for his argument that humans and other animals are hardwired to seek out mind-altering experiences in the form of like alcohol stimulants and psychoactive compounds, like he thought we were just inherently driven to try to like turn um <laughs> in scientific parlance yeah i think i just wish that everybody could see the hand gesture <laughs> and so he decided to repeat the tesco experiment with much more rigor which is to say any rigor at all so he used two elephants and he gradually figured out the dose by starting small and working up 
And um, his team wound up with 0.003 milligrams per kilogram low-end dose and a 0.1 milligram per kilogram dose for the high end, which is the same that Tusca received. But instead of injecting it into their muscles, they administered it in water the same way humans take LSD. You know, generally it would be like dissolved into your mouth. And so they just like didn't give the elephants water for a few hours and gave them a bucket full of their dose of LSD and they drank it up. What a confusing world for those elephants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they did act strangely, more so on the higher dose. And they showed some like minimal brief signs of aggression, probably just because they were like, what is happening? But it wasn't like a sustained super violent outburst the way must is. So he concluded that LSD did not incite a uh, must-like state in elephants and therefore <laughs> was not a, a useful research tool in this regard. But they also like they just didn't act very aggressive. They acted the way you would kind of assume elephants on acid would. They like freaked out briefly and then just kind of like rocked around and like walked funny. And like one of them like laid down for long enough that they were worried. But then they went over and like nudged the elephant and it like got back up and was like, fine, <laughs> I'm fine. The ground just felt so good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and then they didn't have any long-term ill effects. So, you know. Kind of like humans. As yeah. is true for all potential acid users, what matters is being careful about your dosage and having a good buddy to watch you on your trip, which <laughs> these later scientists proved to be. So that's it. That's my story. Be a buddy for your high elephant <laughs> Don't give elephants acid. It's probably just a bad idea in general. But bar feels so different right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, we're back. And Sarah, why don't you tell us about our most stuck in a bathtub president? Yeah, who I learned in the course of researching this never got stuck in a bathtub oh yeah he's our <laughs> only he's the only president who was also the chief the only, justice the of the supreme who court was never stuck in a bathtub yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was uh he was famous for loving bathtubs and okay. um when he like traveled down on a ship <laughs> to go see the panama canal he requested a giant bathtub that there's this famous photo of four full-grown men sitting in a bathtub for him. So he was like a large man. But he was an extremely big yeah, human. Yeah, but like extremely accomplished human and president. And all we know about him is that he got stuck in a bathtub. And he's the last president to have facial hair. So Whoa. William Howard Taft. Before we get into him, we're going to have a brief primer on how you make whiskey, which is that you start with some grain mostly barley, and then you convert the starch into sugars, which we call malting, and then you turn the sugar into alcohol, which is fermenting, and then you distill it. So you like boil off the alcohol, and then some of the flavor compounds come over, and at that stage, it tastes pretty bad. <laughs> so you stick it in a barrel, usually an oak barrel, and then you just let it sit there. And over time, in a magical chemical reaction, the things that tasted bad turn into things that taste good. And then at least three years later, generally, you have whiskey. Wow. It's incredible. It's amazing. Why didn't you bring some for us to sample? <laughs> I, I should have. I should have brought the Maker's Mark, but alas. But starting in the late 1800s, there was another option because we had invented artificial flavorings. And so some clever people realized that what you could do was take a little bit of real whiskey, mix it with basically vodka, like some kind of neutral spirit, 
and then add some caramel color and some flavoring, and it tastes like fancier whiskey, and you can sell it for a much higher profit margin because it's really cheap for you to make it. And they called this rectified whiskey, <laughs> I guess, because they were fixing it. And apparently you could get, like, rectified versions of pretty much everything. They sold, like, bourbon essence and, like, old Tom gin essence. And you could just, like, make any alcohol you wanted just by mixing, like, vodka and this flavor. So this is, like, the booze equivalent of, like, the Coke syrup that goes into a soda fountain. Yes, exactly. I kind of wish that they still existed as a thing. I was thinking, like, like those little crystal light squirting yes. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should have just- this. Or, like, those Coke machines where you can combine any flavors mm, that you yeah want. the freestyle yeah. machine yeah i would that would be so fun but alcohol have. yeah boozy freestyle machine mm-hmm. i would love this dear coca-cola yeah but um unsurprisingly the the traditional whiskey makers did not like it at all Boo. yeah they felt that it was not real whiskey but there was not a lot they could do about it because who got to decide what whiskey is there was literally no law to say <laughs> no. what whiskey was <laughs> It seemed briefly like maybe something would happen for them when Congress decided to start investigating the Distilling and Cattle Feeding Company, which was better known as the Whiskey Trust, because they sold like 90% of all the alcohol that was purchased in the United States. I was going to say, there was just one whiskey company? Just one, the Whiskey (laughs) Trust. Uh, They were one of the original stocks on the Dow. They were so big. The case was like kind of complicated. Apparently, they were sort of engaging in maybe some bribery so as to maintain their monopoly of whiskey and other alcohols. But the people making the case against them ended up basically just trying to make the argument that fundamentally the whiskey trust was just like not to be trusted. They were just bad Big people. whiskey. Yeah. Whiskey antitrust. And so the <laughs> argument they make was they made that they were duping their customers into buying fake whiskey. But then that meant that they were basically asking Congress to decide like, well, what is whiskey? Like it If this is fake whiskey, then what makes it real whiskey? These are the real questions that Congress was created to answer. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The important issues in 1895. Yep. Because it was extra confusing because the people making the case are basically saying, well, it's indistinguishable from real whiskey because that's why people buy it. Mm. Because it's indistinguishable. But if it's indistinguishable, then, like, isn't that whiskey? Like, it's a brown liquid, and it tastes like whiskey. It's got the chemicals that make it taste like whiskey, and there's not just whiskey. it like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's whiskey. Exactly. <laughs> so they never really decided, because in a strange twist of events, the main expert testimony was given by a man who was in a short-selling scheme with a t- stockbroker company to try to, like, take the whiskey trucks down. <laughs> so that didn't really go anywhere for them. But it stirred up all this controversy. And then later, Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, mm. which was the major piece of legislation that got enacted after Upton Sinclair published The Jungle, which, of course, was about all of the incredibly shady and, frankly, revolting practices in the meatpacking industry. And it's basically just like a truth in labeling law that says, like, you have to disclose certain things about your food products, like what is in them. Like, for instance, is there cocaine in your Coca-Cola? <laughs> is you there formaldehyde disclose. in your milk? Which was another thing that was <laughs> yeah. happening. Yeah. So this was like a huge piece of legislation. And in it, they had to decide what is whiskey. And it was decided that whiskey was only traditional whiskey. You had to ferment it and you had to mash it and you had to age it in barrels and that was the only thing that whiskey could be if you added anything except water like if you added a neutral spirit or flavorings or anything like that that is not whiskey that is an imitation or a compound which unsurprisingly people did not want to buy 
something to drink that was called a compound. So the rectifiers weren't happy about this. They didn't want to call their whiskey a compound. That wasn't appealing. <laughs> so Teddy Roosevelt was president at the time, and they basically just like lobbied hard enough and were angry enough that they got the attorney general to consider their case and revise the law, but they got shut down. And they kept trying and they kept trying until our good man, President Taft, came into office. and With a bathtub full of whiskey. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> he was a large man. Uh, his solicitor general took it on at first. And then whatever decision the solicitor general came to was so terrible that both sides were like, absolutely not. And they <laughs> asked the president himself to decide about it because he was a lawyer. And I guess he liked whiskey. And so he personally heard the case and he laid down the law in what is called the Taft decision, which says that you can call it straight whiskey if it's made from only grain. So you can't add you can add water to get it down to like a certain safe alcohol content, basically. <laughs> but you can't add anything else. You can't you can only add... call it whiskey if it'll blind you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but if you call it blended whiskey, that can be whiskeys blended with other whiskeys, but it can also be whiskey blended with other neutral spirits and things like that. No one was really happy about that, but I think at that point they had just asked so many people <laughs> that they were like, well, the president himself has said it, and so we must abide by it. And that has literally been most of our definition of whiskey for the last hundred plus years. They did add like a stipulation that it has to be aged specifically in new barrels. And there is like a specific range of alcohol content. But basically, we're still going by what President Taft decided just personally was going to be whiskey. But the problem is that now science has kind of caught up to us. So we don't no one's really making whiskey by like adding artificial whiskey flavor, although frankly, they should make that and that should be a new thing. But they are making whiskey in many, many fewer months than like the three years than is standard. Like there is some whiskey now that is made in basically a couple of weeks or even like there's a brand of rum that's made in six days. So like Cleveland whiskey does it by putting the liquor in a big steel drum and then you throw a bunch of like oak staves in there and then they use very high pressure to push the liquor through the wood mm. and like back mm -hmm. out again. So you're just like doing the aging thing but really fast it's and an that instant seems pot. to work <laughs> yes exactly and like i think it's cleveland whiskey has like won awards for how good their whiskey is there's another place called oz tyler that does it with oxygen and ultrasound a place called lost spirits uses like again wood chunks but then like heat and ultrasound and you're basically just making the chemical reaction happen faster which is really yeah. smart if you're a distiller because If you make any aged alcohol, it's very hard to go with the market flow. <laughs> so, <laughs> apparently, Maker's Mark like, made all these headlines because they said that whiskey was getting so much more popular, perhaps because of Mad Men. That's probably true. Yeah. They, not not true. Not, it's, not, it's not not true. And um, in the wake of the popularity, because they aged their whiskey for so long, they were basically going to have to start, like, watering down their alcohol to meet all of the demand for it. Okay. Which, which is wild. But, like, it says, like, you, you have to be predicting demand, like, a decade from now, yeah. which yeah. is a silly thing. But if you could make your whiskey in a, a few weeks, that wouldn't be a problem. You would make a lot more money. But, like, again, all of the people who make, like, real whiskey are trying to argue, well, the that's not really whiskey, but legally it is whiskey, except sure is. in Europe. Europe says it has <laughs> to be, it has to be aged for three years in Europe to call it 
whiskey. So apparently in Europe, this whiskey is not whiskey, but here it is whiskey. What do they call <laughs> this other thing? I don't know, but you're not legally allowed to label it as whiskey. An imitation, perhaps, or a compound. Mm. <laughs> I'm not really sure. But I just think this is so silly because, like, it's whiskey, though, right? Like, I just, I don't see the argument to say that it must be aged for it to be right whiskey. But then again, if it's if you don't lay down a definition, then what is whiskey? Wow. We don't know. It's just blended grain juice. Yeah. But then, like... So it was lots of things. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Yeah. This is the problem. No, I zoned out for a second because there's this really cheap whiskey that my dad buys and keeps in like the big plastic handle, you know, <laughs> at home. And I just needed to know if it was blended so that I could lord it over him that it wasn't real whiskey. But it's real. But it and is And I was real. disappointed. But also blended whiskey is real whiskey. Like lots of good whiskeys are blended whiskeys. Yeah. It's all real. If it tastes like whiskey, it is, and I think it's all silly. I mean, this this doesn't taste like good whiskey. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> good whiskey and real whiskey are different issues. Yes. Wow. What was the weirdest thing we learned this week? The pooping. Yeah. <laughs> that was fast. It's always was, the pooping. Yeah, that was really fascinating. I wish there was a more definitive answer, but I love that. For the people who are doing the pooping, it's very real. Very real. (laughs) The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editors, Jess Bodie and Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.